I next met with Dr. Laura Pinter-Brown, and to begin, she commented on ASH papers on mantle cell lymphoma, beginning with a landmark European study. So this trial looks at the results of a trial called Mantle Cell Lymphoma Younger from the European Mantle Cell Lymphoma Network, where they took patients under the age of 65 with mantle cell lymphoma that was advanced but not treated, and treated them with three cycles of CHOP, three cycles of DHAP, plus rituximab, followed by a high-dose ARIS-C-containing myeloablative regimen with autologous stem cell infusion. And they studied 391 patients that were evaluable and found that in the two arms, arm A is RCHOP and arm B is RCHOP with RDHAP, that the overall response rate is equal, but the complete response rate is significantly higher in the experimental arm. And it's also interesting that even though after transplantation, the both arms were equal in terms of complete response rate and overall response rate, that the time to treatment failure was increased in arm B, which was their primary objective, as well as their response duration. Overall, the patients fared the same in terms of overall survival, and arm B, because it has more drugs, is overall more toxic with increased bone marrow toxicity, renal because of the platinum, nausea, vomiting. However, what it shows us here is that, number one, all complete responses aren't created equal because the patients, despite having complete response after bone marrow transplantation in the different arms, did not fare the same in terms of requiring the next treatment. And it raises the question, really, when the high-dose ARIS-C is important, is it important in the induction therapy or is it important as part of the transplant regimen or both? and raises the question about what the role of total body irradiation is in the conditioning for the autologous transplantation. What's the bottom line? Is this enough of a positive result that you would ever consider this kind of strategy outside a protocol setting? Well, I think we have ample information that for a younger patient in particular, we're going to get a longer disease-free interval if we're more aggressive and include high-dose ARIS-C-containing regimens. So if we look at MD Anderson historically, has told us that hyper-CVAD is better than CHOP with transplantation. And we have two other trials, one by the Nordic Group, published in Blood 2008, that shows us maxi-CHOP and rituximab with high-dose ARIS-C and then a conditioning regimen with autologous transplantation also leads us to a very long disease-free interval. And then we have the GILA data that was presented in abstract form at ASH in 2008, very similar design in the trial, also showing a higher complete response rate with an ARIS-C-containing regimen. So I think it tells us that if we're dealing with a younger patient and our goal is, since we do not have the ability to cure mantle cell lymphoma with conventional treatments at this time, if our goal is to keep the patient disease-free for as long as possible until we learn more about how to treat mantle cell with a curative intent, that this is a very appropriate mode of approaching a younger patient. What's a patient, let's say, who's age 60, perfectly good health otherwise, has mantle cell, needs to be treated, likely to receive in your hands right now, both on and off study? Well, we are currently not involved in any upfront study, so all the patients are treated off study. And I'm currently using the Nordic regimen, which is somewhat like hyper-CVAD, but without the high-dose methotrexate that requires the patient to be hospitalized for levels. So it's, I think, a little bit more patient-friendly 
not as much in the way of admissions required, and they also had very excellent results in terms of prolonged progression-free survivals. And if someone were to come to you for a second opinion, and the first opinion was conventional RCHOP followed by transplant, what would you say? I think that that's clearly inferior. If someone is so delicate that they can't receive a more aggressive regimen that has high-dose aracea in it, then probably instead of using an inferior induction regimen, we should probably be thinking about some other kind of consolidative or maintenance approach that they could receive, since most of the patients that people deem too fragile to receive hyper-CVAD or a Nordic regimen are also in large part going to be too fragile to receive the high-dose therapy with peripheral stem cell rescue. What's an older patient with mantle cell in your practice likely to receive? Those patients might go on to a clinical trial with an experimental single agent. They may get CHOP followed by some kind of consolidation. There is absolutely no data to support Zevlin consolidation, but I often do it. Sometimes I'll use rituximab maintenance, for which there is some data, or some other regimen, perhaps bortezomib as a single agent, or some other approach, even Zevlin, that will be less toxic for the patient. What are your thoughts about the bendamustine-rituximab-bortezomib combination? I think bendamustine-rituximab is an excellent choice for an elderly patient. It remains to be seen what the toxicities will be when we add bortezomib, but it is an enticing combination. How about abstract 966, looking at lenalidomide dexamethasone and mantle cell? Well, this is another trial that looks at, if you want, R-squared or the addition of something to lenalidomide to improve response rate, both in other indolent lymphomas and in mantle cell lymphoma. This particular study looked at patients who had greater than one prior treatment regimen, either weren't eligible for transplantation or had failed transplantation. They received lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and anoxaparin as their antithrombotic prophylaxis, and they were able to receive this if they had a response for a maximum of 12 months. And they looked at 33 patients. Their median age was 68, primarily did not have a blastoid variant. Their median prior treatments were three, so they were fairly heavily pretreated. And the response to the induction phase was an overall response of 67% with 15% CRs, only 30% progressive disease, which I think is really rather good. And then after median follow-up of only six months, so it's very short follow-up, none of the complete response patients had progressed at that time. No patient developed thromboembolic disease, so we see that the prophylaxis was effective. It didn't matter whether they had received bortezomib or autologous transplant before because these drugs have a different mechanism of action. So I think this is also very enticing for patients that are fragile or patients with relapsed or refractory disease. One wonders what the addition of rituximab would give as we see there's protocols so-called R-squared with lenalidomide and rituximab that show perhaps a synergy or an increased response rate when rituximab is added to lenalidomide. So I think this is a very nice pathway to pursue for the fragile patient or for the patients who have relapsed or refractory disease. Is there an interest in the clinical research community in looking at including lenalidomide in upfront therapy or in some kind of maintenance situation? There is a trial, I believe, ongoing using it as a maintenance strategy. I've certainly seen good results of that in myeloma. 
Let's talk about T-cell lymphomas, and it's always tough for an oncologist in practice to figure out when he or she needs to know about agents that aren't available and might be available soon or so many, but seems like Brent Tetuximab Vidotin's out there or something they need to know about. That's for sure. So B. Vidotin, not using the whole long term, this really is a home run to me. This is a group of patients who had relapsed to refractory systemic anaplastic large cell. A total of 58 patients were looking at the data being presented for the first 30. The majority of patients had ALK negative tumors, so we know right off the bat this is a bad group of patients. These are patients that are highly refractory and very difficult to treat. Their median number of prior chemotherapeutic agents was two. 27% had failed a previous autotransplant, 63% had primary refractory disease, 53% had not responded to the most recent prior therapy. So right off the bat setting the stage, we know that this is a group of patients in dire need, and they've already proven to us that they're not going to be particularly chemosensitive and really are in need of a treatment. And here we have a treatment who had an 87% overall response rate with 57% complete responses, 30% partial responses, and then three stable disease. Really, most patients, if anybody was there looking at the presentation, looking at a waterfall plot, there was reduction in tumor burden in 97% of the patients. When do we see that? Not very often. So most people really benefited from this treatment. And it didn't matter whether they were ALK positive or ALK negative in terms of response. Their median time to objective response was quite short, six weeks. The current duration of objective response currently ranging from four to 36 weeks. Their B symptoms were also dealt with in the few patients that had B symptoms. 90% responded in terms of B symptoms. And in addition, 33% who had not had autologous or were eligible for allogeneic stem cell transplant were able to get that therapy, which we view as curative. So not only were these patients palliated in terms of their B symptoms, but a third of them were able to then go on to what we believe would be curative intent therapy, which they probably wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. And then when we look at toxicities, Really, most of the adverse events at any grade are peripheral sensory neuropathies, 40%, some diarrhea, some nausea, around in the 40% range. But the vast majority of the adverse events were not grade 3 and 4, and only 13% peripheral sensory neuropathy, grade 3 or 4. And so to me, this is a treatment that really hit a home run for this patient population, something that was very tolerable for them and clearly is something that people need to know about that are not participating in clinical trials for their patients. So we also saw an exciting presentation in Hodgkin lymphoma with this agent. Can you talk a little bit about what b actually is? It kind of seems similar to the trastuzumab metansin conjugate in HER2-positive breast cancer, TDM1. Bifidotin is a drug conjugate. The backbone antibody is something that used to be called CD30. It's a chimeric antibody. And orostatin, which is a proprietary chemotherapy that is a microtubulin inhibitor, has been conjugated to this antibody. So when the antibody was used 
without this conjugate, actually there were much less responses, both in Hodgkin's, where almost all the patients' best response was stable disease. And in this patient population, I believe the response rate was something around 30%. But adding this conjugate allows it to be targeted to these cells that are expressing CD30, which actually are not very many cells in the body. They're activated lymphocytes and malignant cells, and really not other cells, which decreases the toxicity, and then allows this chemotherapeutic agent to be delivered directly to these cells. And really, the toxicities that we're seeing are primarily related to the chemotherapeutic agent in the peripheral neuropathy. So this is a way of targeting an antibody that had much less efficacy without the chemotherapy and making it into a really good, efficacious, targeted therapy. Where do you see things heading with this agent, both in T-cell lymphoma and other cancers? Well, let's talk about T-cell lymphoma first. So the trials that I know are being contemplated and are being opened at this time make a lot of sense. One is for patients with cutaneous CD30-positive disorders. Again, a group of patients, it's not life-threatening like this is, but disabling don't have a particularly good therapy. The naked antibody worked extremely well in that patient population, but it is no longer available. In this group of patients, where this is going to be going is in addition to CHOP chemotherapy, in high-risk anaplastic large-cell lymphoma patients that have systemic disease, and those patients would be the patients that are ALK negative or patients that are ALK positive with a high IPI. Those are patients that have an extremely poor prognosis. So what remains to be seen is, can you add this to CHOP chemotherapy, or will you get too much toxicity? But obviously, this is such a great response that it deserves to be moved up front in this patient population. So hopefully, we won't have this kind of patient population with relapsed and refractory disease. Do you think this is enough evidence to make the drug available? And if so, when do you think it will be available? Well, I know that the data will be presented to the FDA, at least for Hodgkin's lymphoma, and there is going to be a compassionate use or so-called compassionate use program where certain institutions in the U.S. will have availability of this drug, and so everyone in the community needs to know that is a choice so that if they have a patient like this, their patients can avail themselves of this drug. They will have to travel perhaps to another place. So this is very, very important for our patients. You also mentioned using it in other patient populations. Another smaller group of patients that I think is of interest is there are patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that express CD30. There are also other peripheral T-cell lymphomas that sometimes express CD30, not as homogeneously as anaplastic lymphoma and not as intensely but those patients also probably deserve to have this drug explored as a treatment option for them. So, wow, there's a lot going on in T-cell lymphoma all of a sudden. There is. How about Abstract 114, looking at one of the interesting new agents, Romadepsin? Abstract 114 is looking at Romadepsin. This is an IV HDAC inhibitor, and this trial was one of the now, new versions of trials for peripheral T-cell lymphomas, where we do such things as have central pathology review, so we really know what lymphoma they have, where the responses are graded by an independent committee. The first drug that was studied in this fashion is pralotrexate, and that's FDA approved for peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And now this is another drug. The importance of these kinds of trials are that really peripheral T-cell lymphoma, I view it as kind of the orphan disease of lymphomas. We've spent a tremendous amount of effort and time optimizing our therapy for B-cell lymphomas, and we're doing so much better. 
This patient population has been treated with the same kinds of combinations, but not with good prognosis, and for various reasons have not been studied in an appropriate fashion. Finally, we're getting around to this patient population, and what we know is that using treatments for B-cell lymphoma, we have a poor prognosis. We need new drugs. We need a new drug treatment platform. So these kinds of studies using romadepsin allows us to now try and contemplate what will that platform look like? So these are patients who had peripheral T-cell lymphoma, always a heterogeneous group, but the most common ones usually are peripheral T-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified, angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, particularly ALK negative. These patients had failed or were refractory to at least one prior systemic treatment. This is a drug that's infused over four hours intravenously, on a Q weekly basis times three with one week off. And the primary endpoint of this trial was complete response as evaluated by a central independent review committee. This patient population does present some challenges because they often have extranodal disease, particularly skin disease, and it's very hard to demonstrate that sometimes to an independent review committee. Nonetheless, this was 131 patients one of the biggest trials now for peripheral T-cell lymphoma done in kind of the modern era of having a very well-controlled patient population and that are very well studied. Their histology was confirmed by central review. Their mean age was 59. Their median time since diagnosis, 1.25 years. So what it tells us is that like most patients with peripheral T-cell lymphoma, they fail the initial regimens very rapidly and start cycling through attempts to salvage, not wholly successfully. These patients in 1.25 years have already gone through a median of two prior treatments. 16% of them had failed prior transplantation. So, you know, the usual peripheral T-cell lymphoma group. And despite this, using investigator-assessed response, which correlated fairly well in this study with independent review, we had 16% CR and CRU, an additional 14% PRs with an overall response rate of 30%. Now, some people might look at this and say, this is nothing, 30%. But we have to really realize where we are with peripheral T-cell lymphoma. We're where B-cell lymphoma was probably in the 70s or 80s, so far back. And we're just kind of looking for what drugs have activity specifically in this condition that we can put together. So to me, in this patient population, a 30% response rate is something that we should look at and think perhaps not always using this agent as a single agent for relapse refractory patients, but how can we move it up front and use it as one of the new building blocks for a new treatment platform for these patients who are so in need? Now, you were one of the co-authors on this paper, and one of the things that was shown during the presentation was Dr. Kofier put up this kind of cool slide of potential mechanisms of action, aromadepsin. There's a whole bunch of other stuff on here besides HDAC inhibition, including anti-angiogenesis. Any thoughts about how this might be working? I think no one really knows. Like many treatments, the idea of having an HDAC inhibitor and having a logical mechanism gets us to use a drug that does have efficacy. And I think like many things, we have to admit humbly that perhaps we don't know exactly how it works. There may be some immune modulation going on here as well. I think, honestly, we don't really know what the mechanism is for HDAC inhibitors at this time. Let's talk about the other agent that received a lot of attention in the last couple of years in T-cell. What about 
Abstract 1753. Right, so prelatrexate is a novel antifolate drug. It's administered intravenously with a short push. This trial used a schedule where it was weekly for six with one week off. And this particular trial, much like the trial we just discussed, relapsed refractory peripheral T-cell lymphoma. This abstract is looking at a small subset of 20 patients who had received ice-based salvage therapy at some point prior to their participation in this trial, looking to see what the efficacy was in this patient population. And we see that their overall response rate, about 40%, depending on if we're using, let's use central review, 15% complete responses with a median duration of response, 13.1 months. This is not very much different from the whole patient population, which has been presented at other ASH meetings, and the data is included in the package insert of the drug. Two of these 20 patients achieved a complete response and proceeded to bone marrow transplantation, again showing that some of these drugs, these novel agents, can be used as a bridge to transplantation, which the patient has not been able to accomplish at this point. I think really the point of this is that these kinds of drugs have very different mechanisms of action from what we generally use as induction treatments for this patient population, and hence we might see very sustained and reasonable responses in a patient population who has failed multiple other therapies, usually with therapies that are really what we use for B-cell lymphomas. So maybe we can take a step back. I'm curious, you know, you see these papers come out, but then the question is, what does it mean to practice? So if you look at these two new agents, pralotrexate and romadepsin, how do you actually integrate them into your practice, both in cutaneous T-cell and peripheral T-cell? Well, okay, let's look at romadepsin first. Romadepsin is currently FDA-approved for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Personally, I have been using it for patients that have fairly advanced disease. Before, I would consider giving them chemotherapy, either single agent or very rarely do I use combination chemotherapy. Just an interesting observation on my part, there is another oral HDAC inhibitor on the market for the same patient population, varinostat. And interesting, I know that in my clinic and several of my colleagues have also noticed this patients that respond to varinostat and then lose their response still may have a response to romadepsin, even though it's the same class of drug. So having had a response and lost it to the oral agent does not preclude trying this intravenous agent. In terms of relapsed or refractory peripheral T-cell lymphoma, we have very few options when patients relapse or are primary refractory. I don't know which agent I would use first. I guess the one that's approved because I would be able to obtain it with compensation for the patient. But I think both of these drugs are going to be used in this patient population because neither is a curative agent. Is there a practical problem getting either one of these drugs in the non-indicated situation? I really haven't had that much problem, as an example, getting aromadepsin for peripheral T-cell lymphoma, as it's so clear that there are so little options to those patients. And we do now have some presented data. I've had a little more trouble getting pralotrexate for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma because there are a lot of options that are FDA-approved. So those have been the practical considerations. When I talk to Steve Rosen, I can never really pull out from him exactly how he chooses one drug versus <laughs> another. Do you use this agent? I mean, for example, where would you use it in sequence compared to the two new agents we were just talking about? Well, I think now that we have all these new agents, this drug is slightly more difficult to administer. And in my clinical practice, is 
the usage has fallen off a little bit. But I think everybody always asks, how do you choose the therapy? And it's based on so many variables for these patients. How old is the patient? What is their comorbidity? How badly do they need a response? I mean, how quickly? Because different agents have different onsets of action. What kind of skin disease do they have? Financial considerations, what's going to get paid for? Geographic considerations, does the patient have a ride to clinic or do they need an oral agent? So many things that are both medical and social that go into a decision on how we treat a patient, what have they received before, you know, that you really can't answer. It really is an individual decision for each patient. How about abstract 2360, looking at allogeneic stem cell transplant and peripheral T-cell lymphoma? Well, in this current era of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, where we do so poorly with patients, people have wondered, what if we throw the works at them? What if we do auto or allotransplantation? Will that overcome our terrible results with induction therapy? And so at least NCCN guidelines in many institutions, including mine, will often transplant patients up front when they have their first response. So this is an abstract looking at a single center's 12-year experience, so we have to take it for what it's worth. The role of allotransplantation in 27, a small group of patients with peripheral T-cell lymphoma, they had some variable histologies. Of course, their median age was relatively young, 45 years. Most patients received full allo transplants. Many of them had HLA-identical-related donors, and 26% had undergone prior autologous transplantation. So most of these patients were transplanted with some kind of response, either CR1 or CR2. Only six patients had refractory disease at the time of transplantation. And their five-year overall survival, really across the board, looking at one or three-year or five-year overall survival, so let's focus on the longest survival data, 50%, which is really excellent. If we look at data that looks at five-year overall survival in PTCL patients as a conglomerate, their overall survival is about 25%, and I might be being a little bit generous, and non-relapse mortality, 15%, now giving a median overall survival of 27 months median follow-up time, 22 months. So these are very selected patients. The young patients, they obviously had a good donor. It's one institution. It shows you that you can do allotransplants in the appropriate setting. 